Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll finish our coverage of book four of The Dark Tower, Wizard in Glass. Let's start the show. So let's do an entire book recap here, Jay. Wizard and Glass. That shouldn't take long. <laughs> that, that shouldn't take long. <laughs> well, we've done a lot of episodes on this uh, on this book, and there are things that happened at the beginning that you might have forgotten happened. So let's do this. Yeah. Wizard and Glass started with a repetition of the end of the Wastelands before finishing the Cotet's time with Blaine. They then found themselves in a version of Topeka, Kansas, where a superflu killed the population. After following the path of the beam down I-70, the Cotet sees a castle made of glass not too far from a thinny. The thinny brings back memories to Roland, who shares a story of his youth from after he bested court, was sent west to Magus for his safety and a mission, fell in love, encountered the forces of the good man, John Farson, and lost his love, and ultimately was set on his path to the Dark Tower. This takes up most of the book. The book ends with the Cotet facing off against Randall Flagg before continuing with their quest for the Dark Tower. Catch all that? Yeah, that that, that was a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it. you know, over the course of the couple, three months that we've been doing this book, you might have forgotten that there was that whole thing with Blaine at the beginning before we got into the story of Magus. Mm-hmm. But it was a fairly significant part of the book, and uh, there's a lot going on there. So one of the things we wanted to cover was the last two pages of this book, which Stephen King dedicates as the afterword. And in this two pages, I found a lot of fascinating information. Jay, you and I have talked about before that the only thing I love more than Stephen King's stories are the stories that Stephen King tells about writing the stories, whether that be prefaces to some of the short stories that he's done afterwards, his nonfiction. I, I think I might even love that part of Stephen King's writing even more. And so when I saw two pages of afterward, most people would be like, eh, I already read the mm-hmm. story. Get me on to book 4.5 or book five. But for me, I was like, ooh, two pages to dissect. <laughs> and why not spend a, a you know few minutes reading those two pages? And there's so much that he packs into those two pages that are kind of sort of important to the story. Yeah. And so for me, um, you've read beyond book four, so you have some idea why some of this is important. But for me, I was excited to see some of the foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. He had talked about the importance of Thunderclap in the book itself. Uh, Elaine and Cuthbert both note that when Roland is having his vision that they heard him say Thunderclap and they noted that that was odd and that seemed to be something important in Roland's vision. But first, King to call it out here is uh, there is a place called Thunderclap that's going to be important. That was intriguing to me. He also yep. mentions um, some of the other characters' names that are going to be important. Randall Flagg, who obviously we know. Ralph Roberts, who uh, we have not encountered yet in these books, but is in one of the Dark Tower adjacent books, I believe, that I have not read. Yes, he's the main character of Insomnia. Yes. Um, he mentions King does the Wandering Boys from the Eyes of the Dragon, uh, and even Father Callahan, the damned priest from Salem's Lot, um, who again- Is it Callahan or Callahan? It's Callahan. <laughs> nice <laughs> nice try, though. 
<laughs> so I will say I do know that Father Callahan does play an important part, but for him to actually state it in the afterward, like, hey, this is a character that's going to be important and he's from a entirely separate story altogether, sort of made me excited to see what comes up next. Yep. And for a fun fact for people interested in this podcast, when Jay and I were talking through names of this podcast, we had a whole list of brainstorm things before we came up with obviously the best name, Two Guys to the Dark Tower came. But at one point, I proposed uh, Stephen King's Jupiter, which is from the afterword here, when King himself calls this book, My Jupiter, a planet that dwarfs all the others, at least from my own perspective, a place of strange atmosphere, crazy landscape, and savage gravitational pull. And more importantly, he means it as the one sort of set of stories in which all of his other stories revolve around in some way that they're all yeah. interconnected, all part of one system. But Jay vetoed Stephen King's Jupiter. It seemed a little bit too esoteric. Esoteric and pretentious are my middle names. <laughs> That's right. Sean Esoteric Pretentious McGurr. It doesn't roll off the tongue. Um, yeah, and I think like, you know, you said that the in these two pages of Afterword, there was a lot of foreshadowing. And I think more than that, King is sort of showing his hand a little bit that probably more for more now than at any point up to now, up to this point, and as he's been writing these books, is he's thinking about how the rest of the story is going to go. And what is going to be in those stories, which characters he's going to start drawing into them. He he has already established two characters like Ralph Roberts and Father Callahan are. So the decision to basically come right out and tell us that they are going to show up at some point later in a Dark Tower book. It shows that there's a, a level of forethought and planning that I kind of feel hasn't been happening yet mm. or up until this point. I think Possibly it started to crystallize in his mind as he wrote book four, but I don't think before he started writing book four, which he waited six years or five years, six months to start <laughs> writing um, after finishing book three. And then in less than six months, he threw book four together. Um, you know, I, I think that this this is the first time that I feel like he's really making a plan. Yeah. And since I know what's coming, I think that that is, well, I don't think he was planning on getting hit by a car. <laughs> well, no, that's the other odd piece of foreshadowing in this afterward <laughs> yeah. too, isn't it? So, you know, he, he, he we have all these foreshadowing for the coming books. He also notes where they're going to be set. He says that there's going to be two chiefly set in Midworld and one in our world, and that the vacant lot's going to be an important piece. So, like, he's got a sense of that. And right around that same place, he says... I've started to believe I might actually live to complete this cycle of stories, knock on wood. And that's mm -hmm. the worst kind of foreshadowing as all, because of course, um, shortly thereafter from this, I think it's within the year of him writing this afterward is when he's hit by the truck and really scared for he his came, life. Yeah. Like he came I, pretty close, pretty to, close to, to dying. Yeah. To, to biting the big one there. So. I choose to interpret that his knocking on wood is the reason why he survived that incident. If he hadn't knocked on wood after saying that, maybe he wouldn't have made it. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll talk about, as we get into the next books, the impact of that accident on him, because I know he addresses it, I believe, in the foreword to one of these books. or And, and so we'll get to that. 
The other thing that I found interesting in the afterword is that King, like many of his characters, seemed to rely on a voice within his head to write this book. Um, King talks about how he was driving through western Nebraska when he started to get the idea of what this book would be and whether or not he would write it. And he has a voice in his head and he tells himself, I no longer know the truth of romantic love. I know about marriage and mature love, but 48 is a way of forgetting the heart and passion of 17. And then he hears a reply in his head, I will help you with that part. I didn't know who that voice belonged to on that day outside Thetford, Nebraska, but I do now because I've looked into his eyes across a whore's bed in a land that exists very clearly in my imagination. So there's somebody in his head talking to him and telling him what direction to go and, and how to write this story. And we've talked at length in these podcasts about all the other characters who've had voices inside their head who mm -hmm. have at least been directing them in the way to go and giving them ideas on what to do and whether it's for good or bad, you know, Eddie's brother sort of undercutting him at times and, you know, Detta and Odetta and Susanna obviously have this whole play of voices in their head. Roland hears chord in his head, all of this coming out. And King himself has a voice in his head. And I just thought that that was interesting that King, like his characters, has that. Yeah. And we've always, or at least I've always uh, thought of that as just sort of a, a narrative technique that King's just maybe adding a little bit of spice to an inner monologue to, you know, rather than somebody simply recalling how to do something or having their own idea on how to proceed in an important moment, um, it's a mentor or an important figure in their past who's informing them. And I like that, you know, from a from a storytelling perspective, that does make it a little bit more interesting. But when you apply that to the real world and think about an author's process, does King sit down at the word processor, place his keys uh, on the keyboard, and then wait for the voices to tell him what to write? It might explain a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's weird because I, I, my mind does not work that way. I don't hear voices. I definitely don't hear multiple voices. Like This is a case where King tells himself one thing, and when he says, I tell myself, I take that to mean my voice, who I am, tells me this. And then he heard a separate voice, another voice, and he claims that that voice, which was a part of him, was him at a younger age or him, a, a, you know, a good angel in his head or another piece of his mind telling him, yeah, you can do this. It's in there. And that's not how my mind works. So to your point, I hope that that's a literary device and he doesn't have actual voices inside his head. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with having voices inside your head, but I, that's just not the way my mind works. And so it, it just sort of caught me off guard because it's one thing to read it in a fictional book and say, okay, I can understand that Roland hears voices in his head. And it's a good way, especially in that first book when there aren't a lot of characters to converse with, to have that mm -hmm. inner monologue. But for people to actually have an inner monologue going on, that's sort of foreign to me. Yeah. And in book one, when, like you said, uh, we almost exclusively have Roland's perspective and point of view, it also gives King a way to introduce dozens of other characters into the story in a way that feels realistic. It, you know, like he can't just have, uh, there would have been no reason to ever know who Court was or hear Court's advice unless we have Court's voice in Roland's head. So, it's a device that lets him expand the universe of characters in a book about a single person traveling through the world. So I, I think it it's 
it's an important tool to to use in that sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree with you. So as you can tell, I was very excited about the the physical ending of this book. The last two pages of the afterword is just it was really a, a good stake for me. I, I just loved uh, to to look at it. But in reality, the book itself, the story itself, is the rest of the book. And what right. we noticed is there's actually this is a book made up of endings. We've talked before how King doesn't always land the ending. I'm going to argue mm-hmm. that hey, he landed the afterward, so the the ending's perfect in this book. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you but, count the afterward, this book has four endings yeah. because this book has. This book has three narrative endings to it, and this is something that's kind of fascinated me as we've approached the end of, of this book. And we talked a little bit about it in the last episode, where we began to compare the ending of the Magus story to the ending of the book itself. Mm-hmm. But I had, as you as you mentioned earlier, I'd kind of forgotten about the Blaine story. <laughs> it had happened so long ago in the book that it's like, wait a second. There's a third ending in this because we actually get what we talked about was the it's the ending of book three. It just happens the eighty pages into book four. <laughs> yeah, so we get the we we have three endings here. We've got the Blaine ending, we've got the Magus ending, and we've got the what I'm calling the Oz ending. Yes, and I kind of felt like they all had their pros and cons, but I don't know I. I think the the Magus story or, or the Magus ending was sort of rushed. Like it was a really long story, probably too long, but it wrapped up in what just felt like a few pages. Yeah, and so it kind of felt like it just petered out. And the Oz story, after we did a little bit of calculation, we realized that. That part of the narrative only spanned like a few days of time for our characters as they sat through this endless night hearing this tale of mages. That kind of had an okay ending, but (laughs) uh, their confrontation with this big bad guy was super uneventful. Like It seemed like there were no stakes. So that kind of fizzled for me a little bit. And I thought the ending to Blaine was super lame (laughs) i just didn't so i think i'm coming down on like all of these endings were not so good so king had three opportunities to end stories in this one book and i don't think he did well on any of them yeah yeah unfortunately that might be all too true (laughs) yeah so I kind of threw um, a question out to our listeners on Facebook around this very topic, and I asked everybody, in their opinion, like how successful was King with each of these three endings, and what did they think was the best ending, and how do these endings compare to the endings of the previous Dark Tower books? Mm. I'll share a couple of people who wrote in. Um, Sarah Elms uh, thought that the Blaine ending was anticlimactic. And it was so much build up to such a simple way to get to the next part of the story. Um, she did enjoy the Magus part of the story, but she really hates Susan's fate. And yeah, I don't know if there's anybody who's like, oh, yeah, that's great. I love the fact that the girl got burned at the stake. <laughs> yeah. But I think she's saying that it, it really uh, affects her to the point where she struggles with continuing with the story beyond that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I do think it's a very heart wrenching ending, obviously. Yeah. 
the way th- that's what we're meant to think and take away from it. Yeah, she even says that every time she reads the the Reap Night section of the book, it takes her a week or two to to move past it. But she's always glad to read that Shimi escapes unscathed from the that whole uh, set of shenanigans. <laughs> Shenan. <laughs> I think it might be more than shenanigans, Jay, but all right. Shenanigans. It's not a three stooges. I call shenanigans on the reaping. (laughs) The reaping is not a three stooges sketch. (laughs) Uh, Another listener, Sherry Odom, uh, said that she was very let down by the Blaine ending, especially since she waited so long Mm. to find out how that was going to work out. Yeah, you and me both, Sherry. (laughs) And the fact that all it took to wrap up the whole thing was a stupid dead baby joke. Not not the best way to go. She's a big fan of the flashback part of the book and loved getting to see the young Katet and thought that the Oz ending was really cool. She also threw in a compliment on the show that uh, she thinks that we're doing a great job. So, Oh, that's good to hear. I won't spare that little detail. So just because we're, we're fair and balanced here, I do want to say we have a late entry from Twitter from Dustin McKenzie who says that the Blaine ending is his single favorite sequence in the whole series, and its resolution is so good. Um, so, it's uh, he, unfortunately he hasn't listened to our episode yet, uh, episode twenty, in which we discussed the ending to Blaine. So, Dustin, hmm. sorry, you might be a little disappointed. I don't know if you'll after that episode if you'll make it all the way to episode twenty-eight here. But uh, thanks for listening. If you are, yeah. And uh, final comment that we got was from Grant Piercy. He said that Magus is the most satisfying dramatically. Oz is also kind of anticlimactic. The one face-off the Cotet will have with Flag, and it just kind of fizzles. I think he means the one face-off in the book. Yeah. And overall, the flashback sequences is the best part of the book, and the main narrative kind of grinds to a halt. And I would kind of argue with Grant there that uh, I think the main narrative is actually the flashback part. So <laughs> uh, I think he's saying that the the bookend of walking down I-70 in Topeka mm. is is the main narrative. And I know, I suppose, technically it is, but it's definitely a tiny, tiny part of this book. Yeah. Thank you, everybody, for writing in and uh, helping with our conversation about this. Yeah, I'm just going to agree with all that. I think, and this might be a good transition to our current book rankings. Now that we've finished four books, just sort of where they stand, um, I still have the drawing of the three as my favorite book. And then this book is second. I do think that if the Oz section at the end had been handled differently, I would have put this as my favorite of the first four books so far. But that really sort of sank my ranking for this book. Um, Just because it, it was a little anticlimactic, I thought that King thought he was telling a more dramatic piece, showing Roland killing his mother. I think he thought that that was the main mm-hmm. nut for for Roland, you know, what's caused him to be the person he is when I think that really the Susan piece was a much more emotionally satisfying piece and sort of to tag that on at the end, especially in this middle of this anticlimactic showdown with Flag, I think that that um, just sort of sank this for me. Although now after reading the afterward, maybe this will bump it back up to number one for me. <laughs> Yeah, and um, as far as my ranking goes, I still think that the first book, The Gunslinger, is the best of the series. I know that's a controversial opinion, but <laughs> that's where I stand. And so after that, book two, Drawing of the Three, is the next best. 
And I wavered between putting book four ahead of three or three ahead of four. And as Sean and I were talking about this, I realized how disappointed I was by all of these endings that <laughs> it actually, that's what made me decide four comes last in my list. So right now, my ranking is one, two, three, four, the exact order that they were published. Uh, I hope that's not a trend line because that's going to be uh, not great for the rest of the series for you, Jay. Not great, Bob. Not great, not great Bob. All right, we'll 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 see. I, I it looks to me like I might have the um, a Star Trek thing going on where the evens are good and the odds are bad for me. So we'll see if if we have the Star Trek movie order for me. So, so one big question I had, Jay, was Wizard and Glass. That's the title of this book. Um, titles are important. People pick titles for a reason. The Gunslinger is evocative. Yeah, we're gonna read a book about a gunslinger. Mm-hmm. The Drawing of the Three, same thing. He's going to draw three people, although we find out he didn't in the in the book Drawing of the Three. He really only drew two. But we get to Wizard yeah. of Glass. And when I started reading this book, I'm like, okay, there's going to be a wizard in here. And we see a glass palace in the distance right at, near the beginning of the book. Like, I'm assuming that there's going to be a wizard in there. And there, that's the Wizard and Glass that we're going to be talking about. Um, and by the time I got to the end of the book, I'm like, man, we went a whole book and really... I'm not convinced that this was a great title. Like, I guess the glass is the pink glass, but that really didn't make its presence known until towards the end of the book. Um, I guess the wizard is Flag, and we find out that Flag is was Martin, and, and you know maybe that that's in, that's important, and that's the wizard. But I wasn't sure. What what's your thought? Is this a good title? Is it evocative? Does it make you want to pick up the book? Is it telling the story? I think it's only evocative in that it sounds kind of mysterious, but it's not a good title. I don't love it. It doesn't uh, really like convey something important. It doesn't really speak to the plot or the themes of the book in, in any real way, except that it's just naming two items that are two objects in the story. So here's the twist. By the end of our conversation, as we prepared for this episode, I ended up thinking that this might be actually a decent title and that really the the wizard flag and the glass, the pink glass, are really what pushes this entire plot in some ways. Um, you know, we're we're told that Roland tells this story because he's reminded of the thinny, and that's what sort of sets this this story in motion. Mm-hmm. But once we get into it, we realize that what's really been driving Roland this whole time are the actions of the the glass, that it set him on the path towards the tower, and potentially even flag through the machinations of Martin back in Gilead before he got his guns up and through the end of this book. And those are really the things that are driving him. And so I sort of set up a straw man to knock down here, Jake, because I... I initially thought that this is a bad title. I set you up to answer the question, and then I said, you know what? It's not a bad title after all. Um, because really, what do you think the whole point of this book was? You know, we got 700 pages into this book, and why do you think that this was... What, what was the story? What was King trying to say here? What was What was the point of this story? I think the point of this book and the reason why we get the story that Roland tells and we learn about the wizard and we learn about the glass... Uh, is that it's two things. We finally understand 
the genesis of Roland's obsession with the tower. And that is really important. This is a man who is so driven that obsession really doesn't fully describe his drive. Mm. I think it's important for us to understand that. It's important for us to, to really be on his side when we think about what motivates him to pursue the tower so relentlessly. And we finally learn at least where that obsession began when we travel back in time in the glass. And I think the other thing is that we're seeing Roland develop as kind of becoming more of a human being again, or maybe he's sort of regaining his humanity and some of his, some of his ability to, for us to, to be sympathetic to, to his struggle and root for him in a way that uh, he's, you know, he's kind of becoming, he's transforming away from being an anti-hero to a more traditional hero, maybe because he's growing to be close to his quartet, his new quartet of mm. Susanna and Eddie and Jake and Oi, and they are becoming a family. Yep. And that's humanizing Roland as a character. It's allowing him to feel his feelings for the first time in a long time. It's allowing him to share his feelings for the first time in a long time. And it's giving him something to fight for and even it's given him something to doubt his resolve in the tower. He, I think he says that at one point, like, I think I may have found something that's more important than the tower. Yep. And that's you guys. And for him to say that after what we've witnessed him do and the stories he's shared, that's pretty profound of a change in his character. So yeah. this is not just losing a couple of fingers to a lobstrosity. This is not making a deal with, you know, whatever evil fates there may be in the universe to allow Jake to die so that he can continue on his relentless pursuit of the tower. This is a real change for Roland. So I think those are the the two driving forces. If we go back to what you were saying about the title, I guess the wizard, if that is Martin or Flag, or if these are all the same person in various incarnations or identities, and the wizard's glass, which is this very powerful source of magic and influence to anybody who's around it, we could think of those two things as like these driving engines of yeah. moving Roland around the chess piece of, of his world, guiding him towards the tower, setting him on that path, and making sure that he stays on it. Everything that has happened to Roland from a certain point of view, somebody else or something else in terms of like, say, the, the wizard's glass, has manipulated him to pursue the tower, be obsessed with the tower, have a singular focus on the tower, and at great cost and suffering yep. to his psyche. He's, he's lost everybody he's cared about. He's caused the death of many of them himself, including his own mother, including his closest friends, including Jake. This is a man who has been through hell and back and he just keeps going. And now maybe, and I think we talked about this in the beginning of book three, maybe end of book two, talked about Roland's path to redemption. Like he, he comes to the conclusion that he can't, if he reaches the tower, but he has become a monster along the way, what has he gained? Because yep. if, he if he is a monster and he reaches the tower, then he just brings 
destruction to the tower because he can no longer save it. Right. So he needs to save himself. And I think this is this is a clear sign that he, he might just be doing that. Yeah, I think that that's fair. I, I think that that was a, a, a good way to put all that. Um, I would agree that this is really about the Cotet becoming a family and Roland's obsession. And now that obsession is carried over. I mean, the ironic thing is that Roland has become more human along the way. He starts to care about these people more, but at the same time, they are more obsessed with the tower themselves. Like they've all mm-hmm. renounced going back to their world. This is their mission as well. So they've they've bought into Roland's obsession at the same time. So to some extent, they're coming towards that middle path together. Yep. All right. So as we like to do at the end of these books, we just sort of like to go through some of the critical reception on this. Goodreads, uh, and again, this is sort of self-selecting people who who rate this, uh, got a 4.24 out of five stars on it, which is higher than Gunslinger and Drawing of the Three and Tied with Wastelands. Um, people on Library Thing have it as a 4.07 out of five, again, higher than Gunslinger and just below Drawing of the Three and Wastelands, which are 4.09 and 4.08. So um, it's a popular book. I think just from the casual looking around at people who read these books, four rates very high. I know we got an email from John Egan that we're going to talk about in a little while, and he says it's his favorite Dark Tower book. I see it on the top of a lot of people's lists. Um, we talked earlier about how the language that's used in this book when they're in Magus, a lot of that language and formality has carried over into people who talk about the mm-hmm. books on message boards and in emails. Yep. You know, you get a lot of long days and pleasant nights and, you know, uh, somebody joked that they, in one of the emails that we read about how they, or Twitter about how they say palaver a lot now, and they realize that uh-huh. that's part of the, the, the Stephen King dark tower coming into their real world. And I think a lot of that talking, which we see so much of here because Roland is conversing with people like Elaine and Cuthbert who talk the same type of language as him. It's so evocative that people tend to, to use that a lot. Yeah, and and this book really is of the four books that we've encountered so far in the series. I think this is the easiest one to like mm. because there are elements of this that are very conventional, and that's actually one of the things that I sort of hold against it because mm. the first time you read this book, I I think that the nature of how it is slightly conventional helps it to um, it keeps the the wheels turning and it it. it it's like it's a fast fun ride and mm. to when you read this book because it's it's this like tr- you know more traditional western story and this is old town and it's you know story about the outsiders coming in very classic uh, style and a lot of the characters are are archetypal and things like that so it's easy to get into it's easy it's easy to enjoy but since i was reading this for the second time the conventionality of it was slight hindrance that's where mm. i got bored i'm like oh yeah I, I i know what happens so i need some other element to spice it up for me and i felt there was it was lacking in the spice of the other of what the first three books had that made made it like uniquely dark tower the the blend of genres the the really interesting characters you know just like the mages segment didn't have as much of that mm. and so i Found it a little bit lacking, but I think in general, if you've slogged through, if that's your perspective, <laughs> if you slog through books one, two, and three, 
and you get to book four, it's almost like a breath of fresh air. You're like, mm. oh, wow, this thing just rocks and rolls all the way through cover to cover. And that's why I think it's probably gets such high ratings yep. from, the, from the critics. So we both independently found a review on SF site about this book. And one of the lines that I liked about it was that this is a novel secreted within a novella. And really, it's that novel that I think people like. And it's what I like. I mean, if that novel stood alone without the Blaine pages ahead of it and the Wizard of Oz pieces at the end, that standalone piece would have you know really rocketed up high on my list because I do think it's a, a nice, self-contained story, good characters, interesting, holds my attention. Uh, and that's the part I like. I think it's where it's the novella on either side that starts to, to, to bring it down for me. Yeah, and I think that story could be successful entirely on its own. If if King had published this as a Bachman book before mm. his secret identity had been discovered, and it started with three teenage boys riding into a town and ended with the reaping fair, and that's it, and we never knew anything else about the world except with it, I think it would have worked really well as just a yep. standard Western that for some reason had a magic witch. <laughs> Yeah, sure. Yeah. And odd visions of the tower that may or may not exist. Uh, so one of the contemporaneous reviews was from Booklist, and they were not quite as high. They said, the romantic stuff is rather a yawn, and unfortunately, the blazing action that succeeds it is hackneyed stuff, typical of movie and TV westerns. And then later they say, still, King is the genre fiction writer's genre fiction writer, and the action that is hackneyed here is also, as noted, blazing brightly. So that was a 1997 review in Booklist. So um, I think pointing out a lot of the same stuff that we did, you know, you might have seen this before, but when King does it, it, it ends up being good. Uh, Kirkus mm -hmm. says that while volume one was pretentiously sophomoric and volume two prime King, volume three slack, unfortunately with this one, they say the bleak cosmology of self-assurance versus wrongness is as compelling as ever. But seven rambling volumes of bemused dry storytelling, this will be the ring cycle on top of the Lord of the Rings. So, uh, Sounds pretty ponderous. Yeah, <laughs> very ponderous. Um, now, interestingly enough, uh, I found a Rolling Stone poll from 2014. This was a reader's poll of the 10 best Stephen King books, and this made the top 10 list. And they say, to some fans, the final book's felt a little rushed and anticlimactic, and they see book four as the best of the series. They had that up there with The Shining and The Stand and some of the other classic King books that you'll remember. Um, and then Sci-Fi Site, the site that we mentioned before, says, this is the strongest book of the first four in the series, the most controlled, the most reverberant with what the so-called literary writers like to call craft. It also marks the final stage in the transformation of King's narrative style to something fully mature and realized in the final books of the series. So, Sean, that made me kind of think about how we've now read four books in the Dark Tower series. They're all written by the same author, but because of the amount of time in between each one of these books, what we kind of have is an example here of the same author at different points in his life writing books that are linked in terms of a one long narrative and the different style the different sensibilities and even the 
even which genre each of the books tends to hew to has changed. Like these are, it's almost like each of these four books was written by a different author. Mm. They're, they're different enough in all of those fundamental ways. And they've, they've all been a very unique experience. And even though I'm one of the few people who reads these books, who thinks the first book is the best, I think that it makes it for a hard entry point. And a lot of people struggle. They're like, oh, I, I'm a big Stephen King fan. I'm going to read the Dark Tower books. And they can't get through the first book because just the way that it was written, the style that King employed at the time is different than Stephen King of today. And it was also really different than the Stephen King of book two. And it was very different than the Stephen King of book three. By the time we got to the end of book two, King was starting to sound like his classic 80s self. And by the time I got to book three, he was full force in that. And then yep. now he's he's written book four and King has reached, like this SF review says, he's reached the final stage in his transformation to a fully mature writer. And he is a master of his craft of writing anything he wishes to write about. So now anything that he does, I think he might be trying to purposefully emulate previous styles so that whatever he writes moving forward might fit more nicely with his previous books. But I don't know that he tried that or even had the ability to do that purposefully as he wrote each of these books in, in order. Like he, he couldn't have done what he wrote in book four at the time that he wrote book one. He just, he wasn't that person yet. Right. And I think that's what he was getting to in the afterword when he said, yeah. when he hears that voice and he's like, no, you can write this, even though you're a different person, you just need that it's channel. Still in you. It's still in you. So that's, that's a great theory, Jay. I mean, the other theory could be, you know, 19 when he was, you know, when he was real young writing the first book, you know, he was really addicted to becoming a writer. Second book, you know, he had had his struggles with alcohol. Book three, he's just high on the cocaine. And then book four, he's starting to become sober again. So that could explain it just as well. Hmm. It's just high on life now. <laughs> now he's just high on life. And then, you know, after his car accident, the next books will all be written in an opioid-induced uh, stupor. <laughs> that would explain things. <laughs> oh, now I'm really looking forward to five, six, and seven. <laughs> That's a moderately fascinating theory. All right. So that wraps up our reviews. I do think, um, Jay, I've had a little bit of trouble finding contemporaneous reviews of some of these books, and I've had to struggle. Uh, Kirkus and Booklist have always been good because they've they've got that, but um, I do think it's going to be a little bit easier to find reviews for five, six, and seven as they were written more in an internet age when it's more likely that some of our major newspapers and magazines would have reviews online. I know I already saw um, reviews for book five that are easily accessible in places like the New York Times Book Review, et cetera. So I think we'll be able to make um, a little bit more hay out of some of these reviews than we have in the past. Absolutely. And and the first few books of the Dark Tower series were always relegated to the more obscure parts of the bookstores, the, the, the Calvin Tower type establishments, if you will. <laughs> yes. Um, but by the time book four came out, it was on the New York Times bestseller list, you know, day one. And from there on out, everybody... Everybody had heard of Stephen King and just about everybody who had heard of Stephen King had heard of the Dark Tower books. Yeah, they might not have read them, but, no, they, but it, they were aware of them. Yeah. It was no longer just, oh, that thing that he does on the side that nobody reads. It was it was much more of a, a publishing event. So, All right. Well, let's get to a little bit more listener feedback. Um, 
John Egan, who uh, writes to us from Buffalo, says that Cala in Wolves of the Cala is like California. And I can verify this, Jay. I picked up a audio book of Wolves of the Cala, and I have not started listening too far in, but both the um, the introduction to the audiobook as well as the reader both say Cala. So I think we're on safe ground. We, we, we will try not to mispronounce things anymore. I choose to pronounce it as Cala Brent Sturgis. I remember something like a character in, I think maybe it was Wolves of the of the Kala, where a character explains that yeah, that it's pronounced Kala, not Kala. Like somebody says it wrong, and then they get corrected in the story. I could be just making that up. I don't know, but I have that yeah, well, somewhere deep in the recesses of my brain. Well, we'll see, listeners. You've got a few uh, episodes because we'll be reading four point five before we get to five. So. If- Either JRI is extremely wrong or extremely right. Let us know, and we'll try to make sure that we're in good shape come uh, book five. Um, so John Egan also said that this is his favorite Dark Tower book and his second favorite King overall. He is a fan of eleven twenty two sixty three, which is a uh, a good. That's book. a really not, good book. It is a good book. I'm not sure it's my favorite or even in my second favorite, but I remember reading it when it came out, and it was a fun read. So I have not seen the miniseries yet. Have you, Jay? I have not. No. Um, so John Egan had a very similar experience to you, Jay. He had read The Wastelands. Um, he had said he didn't realize it was a series when he picked it up. He had it for a camping trip. He read it, loved it, went back, read the first books again, and then didn't realize that Wizard and Glass was going to be six long years before it came out. <laughs> so <laughs> one of the uh, original sufferers. Man, he got in at the worst possible time. <laughs> With a long wait. Yeah. Um, and his favorite scene is when Cuthbert saves Shimi, which leads to the showdown between the big coffin hunters and the boys, which is a favorite of mine as well. Yep. So Sarah Elms, who we mentioned earlier, hinted she is somebody who's read ahead and has hinted to us to pay close attention to when Roland is in the glass sequence. It is important later. Yes, that is moderately fascinating, Sarah. Yeah. I think the most important thing that I've noticed in that sequence that hasn't been answered yet is the belt. And I think Roland says that there's a story behind the belt. So I don't know if it is regards to that or if there's something else that we should be fascinated by there. And again, I know you're not going to be able to answer, Jay. So Somebody's going to tell him about suspenders and it's going to throw his whole world out of whack. <laughs> nice. Um, Sarah also questions how we pronounce one of the big coffin hunter's names. I think we've been saying Depape. Yeah. Depape. I think she says Depape. Depape. I'm still not getting it right. When I read the book, I said Depap in my head. And so for however long it took me to read book four the first time years ago, it was Depap, Depap, Depap. And then, I don't know, we just settled on Depape because we wanted to give it some sort of like foreign language flair or something. Yeah. I don't know. Well, He's dead now, so <laughs> we won't have to worry about it anymore. Yes. We'll mispronounce what it says on his tombstone now. <laughs> so uh, Sarah also mentions that um, she likes how King deals with the story within the story, which is going to happen again in Wind Through the Keyhole, which is in our next on our reading list. So uh, look forward to another story within the story. I think it is a it's a nice way to do it. She says it's better done here, but it's also done there. So something to look for. 
Um, and then uh, another one of our Twitter followers, Sumant Natkar, he asked, why are they called the Big Coffin Hunters? And Jay, I'm not sure if we're given an actual sort of breakdown of their names. What do you make of that? Well, I just kind of took it at face value for what Rhea says. It's just a big, dumb name for idiot tough guys. You know, if you look at it too closely, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But if you don't look at it too closely, it sounds kind of cool and ominous, maybe even dangerous because it's got hunting and coffins and big. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But if you <laughs> if you try to think about it too hard, it does sort of break down, right? Are they hunting big coffins? Are they big guys who are coffin hunters? Like, Yeah, I just figure they're, they're big guys who hunt regular size coffins. <laughs> I mean, I sort of get the idea that they put people in coffins, right? I mean, that's... Yeah. But it seems like there might be a better way of saying that. Now, one thing that we... Do you think that they're, that they're coffins that are like, you know, like the old-fashioned style, like narrower at the, the foot than at the shoulder? Right. Or are they like the more modern, like rectangular coffin that you know you don't really need to pay attention to no nope, exact I, shape of a human body no i've been thinking like the six sides right like the small at the bottom small on top a little bit of a an angle and then like the long side i think classic coffins like you'd see standing up outside the mortuary in a western mm. waiting for somebody to fall into or yeah, and that, like the, the overzealous uh, mortician comes out and with the tape measure and measures the guy waiting for the, the shootout Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so yeah, it's a good question. I think the other thing to note is that they all have tattoos of coffins on their hands, mm -hmm. on the webbing between their thumb and their finger, if I remember right, a blue coffin. So, Sean, if I got a tattoo of a coffin, like you described, on the, the webbing between yeah. my first finger and thumb, would that be cool because it's an homage to one of my favorite book series, The Dark Tower, or would it be super lame because the name of Big Coffin Hunters doesn't make any sense? Well, I would almost be tempted to get a little coffin, even smaller than the ones that they have, because the little coffin hunters are the ones that ends up being the names of the boys, right? Like, aren't they jokingly called the little coffin hunters after that showdown? And so... They were yeah, the but more, they're the they, little ruffians who kill dogs for sport. I don't like no, them at no, all. no, no. They call they end up calling, don't they call Roland and Cuthbert and Elaine the little coffin hunters? Some of the people in town do. And so oh, I was yeah. thinking, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. So they're the cool ones because they survive and they kill the big coffin hunters, or at least two of them. Hmm. Yeah, you're right. The lousy kids who kill the dogs, they just call themselves the coffin hunters. Yes, they're not creative enough to come up with their own version no. of the name. Now, the bar is set pretty high on tattoos for people who uh, love the Dark Tower series, Jay. Um, a little blue coffin on your thumb is not going to do it. I I saw just this week a badass shardic that somebody has as part of their Dark Tower sleeve tattoo. So uh, you got a long nice. way to go if, if you're just going to get oh, a blue. What if I got my first finger and middle finger tattooed green? So that anytime I was in front of a green screen, it would look like I had my <laughs> fingers cut off by a lobstrosity. That now, now you might be onto something. Of course, at all other times, which would be most of my life, <laughs> I would just have green fingers, and that would be dumb. I, I guess you would just have to always have a green screen with you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> nothing bad could happen don't, then. Don't look at me. Look at the monitor. <laughs> uh, Sumant also asked this, Jay. Who do we think is the fastest out of Roland, Cuthbert, and Elaine? Well, I think 
Roland is the obvious answer to that. Yeah. But I... but the other two young gunslingers have their strengths. So, you know, Roland might be the fastest with the guns. The other two are fast too. They wouldn't be gunslingers if they were slow on the draw. But Cuthbert has his slingshot skills, right? Yep. None of the other guys have slingshot. And and uh, what about Elaine? Or is it Alan or Alan? <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I think Cuthbert's main skill, while he's good with the slingshot, is more of the the charm that he is able to portray in the, uh, yes. the diplomacy that he can show when he's not being a smartass. Mm-hmm. That that's part of his diplomacy, right? That's his charm. That his... is his charm. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, so they all have good traits, but yeah, there's no doubt in my mind that Roland's the fastest. And and Elaine's, uh, I think, primary skill that the others don't possess is his. He has the touch. Yes, the shin. The shin. Yes. <laughs> good times. All right, so just a little bit of uh, logistics here. Jay, we are going into book 4.5 next, The Wind Through the Keyhole. That's right. Um, so we're this will be the first time that we're reading something out of publication order, and we'll discuss all of that in our next episode, I'm sure. But this is just for those of you who are following along episode to episode. We're not getting into book five. We're getting into book 4.5, The Wind Through the Keyhole next. And another interesting fact about this is that this is the first time either of us have read this book. So we're both venturing into unknown territory for the first time on the, the podcast. So yeah. That'll, that'll be an interesting adjustment to our conversations, perhaps. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. So it'll all be new to us. Um, so we'll talk more about that next episode. But for now, that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com like many of our listeners did for this episode, and we shared their names and their thoughts, and we enjoyed that, so you can do the same. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower. We've always got interesting content there as well. And our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower, where just this week I posted some scary crab pictures that look like uh, they could <laughs> chop off your fingers at a moment's notice, and you too could be maimed like Roland. Or just have green fingers. Either way. Either way. And if you like this show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. We're looking for more reviews to spread the word about this here podcast. So next episode, join us as we begin our coverage of Book 4.5 of The Dark Tower with The Wind Through the Keyhole. We'll be discussing the forward and stark blast sections. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening.